Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. All right, well, tonight is the Book of Revelation, Session 16, entitled The Subject of Repentance. And again, what we're doing in this uh, series is we're looking at the themes of the Book of Revelation. Instead of going verse by verse, we're going theme by theme. And uh, one of the reasons we want to do that is so many times in the book of Revelation, what you're reading about in chapter 1, 2, or 5 is also that same concept is being uh, spoken about in you know, chapter 8, 9, 13. And so it's important that we're, we're looking at the themes of the book of Revelation instead of just going verse by verse. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing. So tonight, we're going to talk about repentance in the book of Revelation. And what I want to tell you is... Uh, this is a, uh, an important subject that is, I mean, it's all over the book. And before we get into what does the book of Revelation say about repentance, I want to give us a little bit of background that is um, a big piece of the why this matters so much and what else is happening in the, uh, in the same time frame, same events or, or same uh, generation. I want to talk for a moment about the mystery of lawlessness. And this is uh, one of the most disturbing aspects of the end time drama is the increase of wickedness and what is described as the secret power. Paul gives us this really interesting phrase, the secret power of lawlessness at work in the earth. The secret power. That will be at work within all of the, uh, the ranks of the earth. And Paul warns us, that the rise of this mysterious evil tendency is actually in relationship, the rise of it, the rise of wickedness, the rise of, of lawlessness is connected to the rise of the man of lawlessness. So these two things are not unique or, or, or separate. They are in relationship. That's kind of part of the, uh, the concept. You could think of the rise of lawlessness, the increase of lawlessness in the last generation. You could think of it as the wake that's going before the Antichrist coming up out of the water. You guys ever seen like a submarine coming up out of the water and the wake of the water starts moving just a little bit before the sub uh, you know, comes up and is now surfaced. Think of the rise of lawlessness in the generation that the Lord returns as being part of the wake of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness and Paul warns us about the the secret power of lawlessness rising in the earth. So let's read the uh, passage. I gave you a little excerpt here. This isn't the whole passage, but it's, it's the points that I wanted to be able to focus on for this session. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day, talking about the return of the Lord, talking about the end times, that day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, talking about the Antichrist. The man doomed to destruction. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. The one who now holds it back will continue to do so. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the works of Satan. So I want to give you three little connection points here. First, there's this like, Spirit of lawlessness, there's this, uh, there's this rise of lawlessness in the culture. There's the man of lawlessness, Antichrist. 
And there's also the coming of the lawless one in accordance with the workings, the strategies, the plans, the purposes of Satan himself. So Satan's purposes are at work in the earth in order to raise up the Antichrist and in order to raise up that Antichrist spirit, that lawlessness, that spirit of lawlessness in the culture that's going to help prepare the way for the Antichrist. Much like John the Baptist preached repentance in order to prepare the way for Christ, you could almost say that the Antichrist uh, spirit is going to be preaching lawlessness in the generation in order to prepare the way for the Antichrist. Now I just want to touch on a few things here. Lawlessness plainly means without law. Means that the restrictions have been lifted related to iniquity. The, the boundary lines, the guidances, the, the law that keeps things at bay and normal and regulated. Lawlessness. It's the law has been removed. And, and specifically talking about laws of morality, laws of love, laws of truth. Lawlessness will be the rule of the day. We're talking about a time period where mankind has previously been tethered and is now untethered and can rule and, and can uh, live lawless in every and every uh, any category of moral ethics of everything a time of being untethered we just think about how uh, negative the propensity of the human heart is throughout human history it's about to get a whole lot worse when the restraints come off and the secret power of lawlessness is preparing the way for the antichrist next Lawlessness is an important end-time doctrine. I'm looking at part B here. Paul starts off his introduction to the Thessalonians. That's the verse that we just read in uh, 2 Thessalonians. He's giving an introduction about the mystery of lawlessness. And in his introduction to the mystery of lawlessness, many times in the epistles, John or uh, Paul or whoever is writing Peter, will give multiple introductions because he's giving an introduction to the next thing he's about to talk about. When he's giving his introduction to the mystery of lawlessness, he says, don't you remember we used to talk about this stuff all the time when I was with you? He says, don't you remember we used to chat, late night chats with the Apostle Paul about the coming of the Antichrist. Pretty intense late night chats. But this is Paul saying, don't you remember we talked about this a bunch. This was not just a, I mentioned it in one sermon one time and most of you weren't present. This is the kind of thing that you know fully. We had a lot of conversations about this. The subject of lawlessness is an important end-time doctrine that we need to understand. Paul made sure that they understood in relationship to the coming of the Antichrist, the, coming, the second coming of Jesus. In relationship to all that, Paul made sure that the people understood the secret power of lawlessness at work in the end-time generation. It's something we need to understand. The power of lawlessness is mysterious. Paul warns that this, there's a secret nature to the power of lawlessness and its sway over the human heart. He tells us that there's a veil surrounding it, that its work is profound, it's wicked, it's disturbing, and it's in accordance with the plan and the working of Satan. The working of lawlessness in the last generation is in connection to the workings of Satan. Now, there's always been a measure, but when Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's talking about what's going to occur right before Jesus comes back to the planet. And his first thing is he says, let no one deceive you. The man of lawlessness must be revealed first. You must be able to look at the Antichrist and go, Antichrist. 
You must be able to do that with your eyeballs or it's not yet time for Jesus to come back. And he says, in the midst of all this, there is a secret power, a power and it's mysterious. Next, there's a connection between the rise of lawlessness and the rise of the Antichrist. Give you a couple of uh, connection points here. We're to understand this. Paul's making these connections. He's calling the, the Antichrist, he could have called him one of 50 names that he's got in the Bible. And he's got a bunch of them. He specifically calls him the rise of the lawless one. And the reason he does that is he wants to make the connection between the rise of lawlessness in the last generation. He wants us seeing those two things as connected. First, lawlessness is being held back in its fullness for a time. Just like the Antichrist has not yet risen. He's got a specific date that is on the calendar that God knows in the future. And until that day, the Antichrist can't just like show up. Okay? He's being held back as is lawlessness. The secret power of lawlessness is being held back. Second, the reality of the rise of lawlessness is a certainty, not a gamble. There's no question. It is going to be. It is cause for alarm. It's the reason Paul's giving such clear warnings. It's a preceding for the coming of the Antichrist, and it will be in connection to deep deception and the lure of evil. All right. Now, that's the background. The reason I wanted to give you that is because now we're about to talk about repentance in the last generation. We're going to talk about the need for repentance. We're going to talk about a generation that is saying, heck no, we won't go. We will not repent. We're going to connect all these dots specifically related to uh, Revelation here in just a minute. Repentance in the last generation, still in Second uh, Thessalonians. I want to give you just a little bit more here and talk about what's happening in the human heart. I want to give you what's, re- what's occurring in the hour where lawlessness is the rule of the day. And lawlessness being the rule of the day does not mean it, it, can, it has to rule you. You have a choice. Do not let lawlessness rule you, though it will be ruling the majority of the people around you. Right, we're promised it will be ruling a generation. But that doesn't mean it will rule your heart. You make that decision. The word tells us that men during that hour, they will refuse the truth because of how entrenched they are in sin. Now, it's interesting. We typically think about refusing truth because of deception. Like you're, you're, uh, uh, you're deceived, so you don't like the truth. Paul makes sure to, to relate the connection in this passage. We'll look at a couple of verses. Paul makes sure to can make the connection that the reason that someone refuses the truth is because of how much they love wickedness and that wickedness has then empowered their deceiver radar. It has empowered them to be deceived. You love wickedness so much that empowers your deception. So now you don't want truth. You're so deceived because you love sin. Let's read it. Wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Wickedness deceives. So you could say sin. Sin deceives those that are dying and going to hell. Sin deceives them. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It says they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to repent. They refuse to embrace God's ways. The delight of wickedness. A verse later, Paul says this. He says, All will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but who instead are those that have delighted in wickedness. We're heading into an hour of time where men will delight in wickedness. It will be their favorite. What do you want, a 
cupcake? You want a hamburger? I want wickedness, please, and give me a double portion. They will delight in wickedness. A generation that will delight, that will ponder, will be excited about, that will defend, that will delight in wickedness. When I hear that word delight, I just think about one of my kids doing something really cute. I just think, that's so cool. That's great. I just, I, that's my picture of delight. A generation will feel that way about the most heinous things ever. We're talking about the secret power of the rise of lawlessness in a generation. The way forward for the church will just be light. Be light. As we've discussed previously, the letters to the churches, they serve as a preface for the book of Revelation. In these letters, Jesus tells us what he wants us to do. He says, don't be like the wicked generation that's around you that won't repent. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, this is Paul again. You are children of the light and children of the day. You do not belong to the night or to the darkness. The, the, uh, there's supposed to be a great contrast in the final generation. As a culture is embracing wickedness and is succumbing to the secret power of lawlessness, as that is occurring, the children of the light are supposed to be children of the day. We're not to be giving in to those cultural uh, things that are becoming normative. We're supposed to be a great contrast, the light in the midst of the darkness. That's what's supposed to be happening. So as there's a secret power of lawlessness at work, you could even say the secret power of righteousness is also supposed to be beaming forth in greater brightness. All right, I got to move on or we are never going to get these notes done. Moving to part three. Jesus calling the church to repentance. Now, we touched on some of this in a, in a couple of previous sessions. I want to just focus on the repent word, the repentance portion. This is Jesus in the book of Revelation. So now the rest of this uh, session is all Revelation content, okay? I just wanted to give you the background. That's what we did in uh, uh, Roman numeral 1 and 2. Now, this is all Revelation content related to the subject of repentance. The very first is Jesus addressing the church at the end of the age, and he's saying, repent, 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 repent. Repent for what? There are a few things that he highlights in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the churches in Asia Minor that Jesus was writing to in, in one sense, but we know the book of Revelation, the entirety of it is written to the church in the final generation. And what Jesus is communicating to the church in the final generation is there's going to be great need to repent for losing ground spiritually. When we sense we are losing ground spiritually, we do not want to give up that dirt easily. We want to repent and fight for it. Jesus, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Repentance for tolerating evil. We see here in Revelation 2. That there were some among them that were holding to the teachings of Balaam. And that they also had those in their midst that were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you don't know what those things are, just know bad. Okay, for right now, bad. We've covered it in other sessions. I'm sure we'll touch on it more in others as well. Here's the gist. Tolerating false teaching. Tolerating evil in our midst. One of the main things the church of the end times is going to need to repent of is tolerating false teaching in our midst repenting of it now you can't repent of it and then still allow it tomorrow that's not repentance so re genuine repentance that jesus is calling the church to do is you got to kick out the false teachers and that's going to be a significant point repentance for immorality repentance for idol worship i'm going to put on here part d repentance for ignoring god's assignment 
There's going to be a great need for the church and for individuals, but I'm far more concerned about congregations, groups, ministries. There's going to be a great need for congregations to repent for ignoring the God-given assignment that congregation was given, and they were doing something else that was maybe an easier assignment or came more naturally or just kind of went with the flow. God is going to be calling for churches to repent of ignoring the specific assignment of the kingdom of God that was given to that congregation. Revelation 3.3, Remember therefore what you have received and you have heard. This was appointed to a specific church. This was to the church of Sardis. As Jesus saying, Sardis, church of Sardis, congregation in Sardis. Remember therefore what you have received and you have heard. Hold fast to that and repent. This was not talking about areas of righteousness and immorality. That, those were very clearly identified to other churches. This is them remembering back to the stuff that Jesus said, the reason I called you forth as a congregation, the very purpose that I have in mind for you as the church of Sardis, operating in Sardis, doing the Sardis thing, I want you to remember what you received and what you heard from me, and I want you to go back to doing that. There will need to be repentance for deviating course from God's assignments and also repentance for half-heartedness. We know the church of Laodicea. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, you don't realize you're actually rigid, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The church of the last days, Jesus is calling out to the church of the last days to be earnest and to repent of half-hearted love for Jesus. To be earnest and repent, to be those that burn fiery for Jesus. These are issues, I mean, the word repent was in every one of those verses if you didn't pay attention. This means Jesus cares about repentance in the book of Revelation. You with me so far? Let's now talk about those that are unwilling to repent because they have the mark of the beast. They're going to be those that take the mark of the beast, that they pledge themselves to the beast. They pledge themselves to the Antichrist. It's the equivalent. Remember, he's the Antichrist. He's the anti-Messiah. So people are going to get saved into Antichrist, just like you and I get saved into Christ. When they get saved into the Antichrist, they're going to take the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hand. When they take that mark, they have pledged allegiance to the one that they got saved into. Now, their salvation ends them in hell because he's the Antichrist from hell instead of the real Christ from heaven. He's got all of his ways and kingdom and operations are all in accordance to hell. Just like Jesus' ways, thought processes, are all in accordance to the kingdom of heaven. These, the equivalent of the mark of the beast, I'm telling you, it's like getting saved into Antichrist. If you can kind of make that connection point. And so they're making the bold proclamation on their hand or their forehead. They give the mark. Those that receive the mark, the most profound statement about them in the book of Revelation it is said repeatedly is they refuse to repent. One of the most profound indications of those, or uh, maybe uh, indications is the wrong word, what, one of the most profound characteristics of those who take the mark of the beast is they refuse, refuse, refuse to repent. Let's read. Even in the midst of the most devastating judgments imaginable, top of page 5, Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. Now pay attention to this. 
These plagues, the ones that are uh, just mentioned here in Revelation 9.20 and the ones prior, these plagues will have killed billions of people by the time Revelation 9.20 occurs. Billions of people. And the statement is, though billions were killed by judgments coming from God, people will look at that and go, I am not repenting. I refuse to repent. Go, but the billions died. All you'd have to do is like, repent. I refuse to repent. In the midst of the most profound judgments that have ever been released. I mean, we're talking like the flood kinds of judgments here. Okay? And the population of the earth where we're at now is a whole lot greater than it was in the Genesis flood. Okay? Billions of people dying by the hand of God's judgments and people's assessment of the situation will be, I refuse to repent. That's intense. Second, 920, another little takeaway there. It's the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind. You're talking about an unrepentant generation, not an unrepentant few. The ones that weren't killed by the judgment, that aren't in Christ, that have taken the mark of the beast... All of them, a whole generation, will refuse to repent. An unrepentant generation. That is so incredibly intense. The book of Revelation talks about repentance big time. Intertwined with demon worship. Look at this. A little bit later in that same verse. They did not repent of the works of their hands. This is talking about building idols, false gods, demons. They did not stop worshiping demons. They will not repent. Hey, I need you to repent. No, I'm busy right now worshiping my demon. Well, you need to repent of that. I will not stop worshiping my demon. In fact, I'm making another one. They would not repent of the work of their hands. They would not repent of worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. They refuse to repent of demon worship specifically. The whole generation. I mean, I don't know how many people you know right now in Texas that worship demons openly. It's not like everybody. Okay, I mean, that's a pretty small number. I don't know that I can think of too many people off the top of my head. Like, yep, they're a demon worshiper and are all excited about it. These guys are energetic demon worshipers, openly. Okay? What kind of generation are we headed into? where everybody is openly worshiping demons and talking about it. They're full of murder and witchcraft. These are two of the primary sins of which they refuse to repent. Revelation 9.21, Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I don't like sexual immorality and I don't like theft. But I gotta say, I am far more concerned about the prominence of murder and witchcraft. They will not repent of it. They are fully bought in. A generation embracing witchcraft and embracing murder, where murder becomes one of the normal sins that happens all the time. Internet pornography kind of level. Murder. This is so intense. Enduring even the greatest physical pain. I just, I can't even imagine this. Revelation 16, 9. They were seared by the intense heat. This is one of the judgments that God sends in the bulls of wrath, Revelation 16. And they curse the name of God. Pay attention to this. They are being burned by intense heat, and they know who sent it. It wasn't a hot day. It was God. 
They're being burned and they curse the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. They know who's doing it. And they won't, they won't stop. They identify that God is the one behind the curtain. Look at Revelation 16, 11, says it again. They curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. You guys seeing this? Refuse to repent, refuse to repent, refuse to repent. A generation that refuses to repent. So Jesus, in the book of Revelation to the churches, he says, you guys need to be all about repentance because I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a generation that will refuse to repent and you must have nothing to do with them. You must not be like them. A major contrast, the church called to repentance, a generation that refuses to repent. Refuses to repent looking at God. You know, one of the biggest reasons right now that people say that they won't repent or this or that is the veiled nature of God. God will no longer be veiled in the end time drama. He will be open. And I mean, there's a bunch of places in Revelation that talk about it. And we'll get to those passages, I promise. God is going to be openly viewed and 100% of mankind will know there's a God. They'll actually be able to see him and they'll go, God, you know, the meanie who sends the judgments. They will have full revelation of who he is and refuse to repent. So it's, it's a lie that people refuse to repent because of the veiled nature of God. People refuse to repent because they love wickedness. They love evil. We are heading into a generation that will so be in love with evil, they will even be willing to endure death, great physical pain, loss, tragedy, the obviousness of who's in charge, and they will still refuse it because they love their sin. This is so intense. Page six, importance of repentance for the church. I want to make sure that we walk away tonight with a proper understanding of how big of an issue this subject of repentance is in the book of Revelation, in the end time drama, for the church. We are headed into the most intense time in human history. And we want to be able to rightly navigate the trends. The information isn't, get, isn't there so we can like do charts and play Bible trivia with Revelation. I mean, I, I honestly think we have probably relegated the book of Revelation far more to Bible trivia than we have to practical application about how we're supposed to live our life and what we're supposed to get ready for. The book of Revelation gives us significant insight about the promised future. You know what? I cannot tell you what your life holds related to your job or spouse or money or whatever. I cannot do that, but I can absolutely tell you what the future of the planet is by reading the book of Revelation. There's no guesswork. So if you're looking for sure, objective, solid, unchangeable realities, look at the book of Revelation and it will tell you the future. And that's the future we need to be thinking of and preparing for, not dismissing like it's not going to happen or that it's just too weird to understand. The increased snares, I'm going to give us some of the reasons and then we'll break up into groups for discussion. I want to give us some of the reasons why the subject of repentance is important for the church. First, the increased snares to repentance. We need to learn how to live in, the, in genuine repentance even as sin increases around us. Because as sin increases around us, it will be all the more difficult to walk 100% unentangled. As sin increases, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24. 
He said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most people who love Jesus will grow cold. Now, grow cold, you can start growing hot again as soon as you decide. Grow cold can be a day-long thing or a trend that never stops. Matthew 24, 13 tells us, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That growing cold is something that should alarm us because the subject of repentance, it's, the, it's your only way out. I mean, I don't know about you. I sinned this week. And if you didn't, please teach me your ways. Okay? When I sin, I can get clean again in a moment. But not just because I woke up. It's because I repent. Which is why Jesus is talking to Christians in Revelation 2 and 3. And to all these Christians, he says, Christians, repent, you did something stupid. Repent, Christian, you did something out of place. I need you to repent so we can all have good standing again. So we can be in right relationships so that you can fellowship with me, so that you can enjoy me fully. Repent. Repentance is a gift, not that we get one time at salvation. Repentance is our way in the Spirit. Repentance is a very important subject for the church to understand because the opposite is the enemy's desire to shame us, to keep us from ever approaching God and talking to him about our junk again. Well, you saved me that one time. I can't believe I've done stupid things since then. You would never receive me back. Shame, shame, condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you must agree with the process. Repent. The way you got clean before Jesus, you repented. It's the way you get clean the rest of your whole life. The issue of repentance is about an issue of tenderheartedness before the Lord. When you repent, your sin is separated as far as east from west. Again, whatever new dumb thing you just did. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's John writing to Christians. We need to understand the importance of repentance, especially in the last generation. This drastically impacts our future. The promise that you and I, if we live long enough, and again, I don't know how many decades we've got left, but it's under 10 because we can see the signs of the times. And Jesus said that when you see these signs, you know, I'm going to come back in that generation. Problem is a generation can be anywhere from 20 to 100 years. But we've got the signs. They're on the landscape. So it's no longer 100 years out. And maybe 50, 60, 70, 30. I don't know. I don't know. But if we live long enough, we are promised to live in the most unrepentant generation ever. The most wicked, the most foul, the most lawless generation ever. A generation that refuses to repent no matter what is put on them. That drastically impacts how I think about my future. I mean, I think about going to the 7-Eleven a little differently. You know? I mean, it's like, if everybody out there is totally unrepentant and bloodthirsty murderers, this impacts what I plan to do on my day off related to going to the park. Okay? I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Like, we need to understand what it means that an a unrepentant wholesale, an unrepentant generation is arising. And the way that things work, trends, they take time. They grow. We're already seeing some of it. Those of you who have been in the kingdom for 10, 20 years, you've already watched a significant increase of wickedness already occur on our watch. It's only going to increase and snowball more. The good old days of, ah, it's going to get better. It's not going to get better. 
Wickedness is going to increase while the light is going to get brighter. We're supposed to get more righteous, more in love with Jesus, more committed to his purposes. But culture is not getting better. It's going to get worse. Lots and lots worse. We need to understand where culture is headed so that we don't have a wrong perspective. We still fight for righteousness, but we just know where this is going. Listen, the end is Jesus comes back and sets up a millennial kingdom and we get a resurrected body. So really, what else matters? In between now and then, so what if there's an antichrist? So what if billions of people die? If we're going to get a resurrected body and live with Jesus forever, if that's the end, if that's the truth, and that's the truth, then we can put up with the hassle in between now and then, but we cannot pretend that the hassle does not exist because it does. There are very clear things that are coming. We need to mentally prepare for what's coming. I just think about the, like, who wants to think about this stuff? So we don't. But why is it in the Bible if it's just to be glossed over and ignored? We need to mentally prepare. And we need to mentally prepare our children for what's coming. I look at my kids sometimes and I'm like, if you only knew what you're going to see with your eyeballs. Oh my goodness. How can we prepare the next generation if you don't have kids or don't want kids? You care about somebody on the planet. They're going to have kids. I mean, you're going to meet people. People are going to continue to be. We want to make sure we've got clarity to hand the people that are going to continue to be. You're going to care about some of them, I promise, and you'll be of no use to them at all if you've not spent any time mentally preparing for what the Bible promises is coming. This is not going anywhere. We cannot stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and make the book of Revelation disappear. It doesn't work. There are so many intense things in the book of Revelation, and we can't go, ah, that's too intense, so I won't think about it, therefore it won't happen. That's a total lie. That's unreality. These things are coming to a planet near you. <laughs> Furthermore, related to the subject of repentance, I, this is one of the ones that I think is most important, and we'll end with this. We need to have confidence in the God who receives repentant hearts. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of the, one of the only ways you'll be able to make it through contemplating all the negative and the judgments and the difficulties and the wickedness and the unrepentant hearts. One of the only ways you can make it through is there is a God in heaven who every time someone repents, he will receive them. And the confidence that that's the one who's in charge. Not, then God doesn't like get into a Satan mood and be like, nah, you repented, but I'm not into that today. He is always God. He's always good. He always receives repentant hearts. And it's the reason that the book of Revelation starts with chapter 2 and 3, the, the letters to the seven churches. It's the reason that Revelation starts with that information saying, church of the end times, here are the parameters. Here are the things you need to know. Repentance needs to be main on the agenda. You need to understand you serve a God who deeply wants you to repent, who will receive you when, repent, when you repent, send you grace so that you can keep doing the work of God because it's not about punishment, it's about repentance so that we can get grace to live with a happy heart and a right spirit before God. Hallelujah. That's the God we're serving and that's the storyline of repentance for us, for all of us that want it. The storyline for those that take the mark of the beast and who love wickedness is they will come to a place in their hearts where they refuse, no matter what God does, they will refuse repentance as an option. The church is to live in repentance. The lost are going to refuse it. All right, let's break into groups. We've got our uh, different discussion groups here with us tonight.
And each one of these groups has uh, been talking, discussing the book of Revelation in the session that we just did, and now they're going to uh, present one question per group. And I'll repeat those questions so that uh, you uh, are able to hear those as well. So um, why don't we go ahead and start uh, here with uh, Kasslyn. So the question is, if someone receives the mark of the beast, uh, can they be saved after that point? Can, they, can something happen in their life that would then uh, turn their heart back to God? Um, so I think we're asking the wrong question. I think this question gets asked all the time, honestly. Um, we're asking the question, can, you know, would. What we want to do is we want to look at what the word clearly says. And the word says they refuse to repent. So the one that is in this, could they turn to Jesus? The statement about them from God is, yeah, they refuse to repent. That's who they are now. That's, they refuse to repent. They refuse it. So whether they could or couldn't is totally doesn't even matter <laughs> because they refuse. They're like, I so love where I'm at right now in my spiritual walk. I just cannot wait. I love it. I got the mark of the beast. I am delighted. I refuse to repent. That's what the word says that their posture is. So like when the Bible says Jesus will come riding on a cloud and on a white horse, could Jesus come riding on a rainbow and, you know, a, a, a walrus? The Bible says he's coming on a cloud and a white horse. Well, yeah, but could he come? No, he, he, the Bible says he's coming. So... So for me, like, I think our human sentiment can get us in trouble because we can wind up trying to create situations which, why would we even, and I'm not picking on this group because I've done this. I'm talking to myself. I've had, I have to have the same conversation with myself. But why do we spend so much time, like, wasting our thought life trying to imagine some hypothetical situation for somebody somewhere sometime maybe when the word just says they refuse to repent? So they refuse to repent. So they refuse to repent. So great question. And, and honestly, I'm so glad that question got asked because that is a very common question. It's a very common, uh, you know, quandary about the state of things and how will people respond? What, do people, what will people be like? What, how does repentance work for them? They refuse to repent. That's how repentance works for them. They refuse to. And so if the Bible didn't say they refused to, if the Bible said most will refuse, if the Bible, it, but it, I mean, there's the one verse that says the rest of mankind, <laughs> they will refuse to repent. It's like, well, but what about that one guy? That one guy doesn't exist. They refuse. They holistically refuse to repent. But it, it's, it's a great question because part of what it does is understanding the finality of that answer, of that response. They holistically refuse to repent helps us to understand the hour we're walking into and the depths of wickedness and the grip on the human heart and the reason now, believer, not to flirt with sin. Because there will be many who were churchgoers, who knew Jesus at one point, who started to flirt with sin, flirt with sin, flirt with sin, went further down, got to a point where they received the mark of the beast, and they will be those, they will be among those who refuse to repent. And they would have never thought it sitting in a Bible study on a Saturday night at a thing. You know, Do not flirt with sin. It is deceptive, 
And it's the issue of the deceptiveness of wickedness, the love of wickedness that keeps a heart from repenting. Be careful not to cherish sin in your heart. All right, uh, back there. The last specific question is, how was that not utterly depressing? Um, Okay, so the question is, as we see the rise of wickedness, and I think you're uh, saying relationally, in the rise of our friend. Wickedness is rising in my friend, and I'm watching it. What do I do? How do I relate to them? Uh, Second, kind of in that is, as we're watching this, how, how do we carry our own hearts? And how do we, where is hope in all of this? so that we don't wind up just giving up and, you know, all running off a cliff somewhere. Like, how, how do we handle this uh, rise of weakness? So the, uh, the first question is, the rise in wickedness of your friend is actually zero different how we're supposed to handle that now than how we were supposed to handle that 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 10 years from now. We are supposed to lovingly confront sin in those that we love. And when it's a lost person, you don't pick on their sin. Their sin isn't their problem. Their sin is they're lost. That's their problem. Their sin is a symptom of their lostness. So if they're a lost person, you don't pick on the, because you, you got this thing. I can't believe you did that. So dumb. Like, that's not the issue. The issue is they don't have Christ. You need to lovingly talk to them about how they don't know Christ. That's how you deal with it in the lost. For, the, for friends that are in the Lord, that are in Christ, we have a responsibility that we have advocated. We have a responsibility that we have just let go by the wayside. We have a responsibility to lovingly, lovingly confront unrighteousness in believers. We have a responsibility. It is what believers do. We say, listen, I love you. We're friends. Like, I've known you for a long time. You know I love you, right? Right. You can't sleep with your girlfriend. Like, that's sin. No, it's not. I can do whatever I want. I'm not. You're talking like a lost person. Like, I love you. That's not okay. That's sin. That, there's no Bible verse that would back up that that's okay. That you are separating yourself from God on purpose. You're not being loving. No, I'm being so loving because I want to see you with me forever upstairs. We have a responsibility to go to our friends that are in sin and lovingly, can I say lovingly enough, lovingly confront that sin in their life. We have a responsibility. And where we don't do that, we are letting our friends slip into immorality, unrighteousness, and lawlessness, and we're going to have to give an account for that one day. We think it was loving to say nothing and watch them go to hell. It's not loving. It's the total opposite of loving. Jesus would never do that. You just imagine Jesus with Peter. Peter is now sleeping with his girlfriend on the side. And it's like, oh, Peter, I'm just, I just love you so much. I would never bring it up. It's crazy. We have, 
We have totally bought into the lie of our culture that sin should not be confronted. Sin should be confronted lovingly. Okay, what's the hope? The hope is we know the end of the story. The hope is we're going to be able to make bright, we're going to be able to make great impact in bright righteousness in real moments in time because as believers, we're operating in the power of God. We're operating in love. We're operating in truth. We're going to see that one that was going down that hill and we're going to be able to pull him out of the darkness. We're going to have those moments where there's all sorts of despair and then God releases the power of God. One more thing. It's really important that we understand God's power in the end times is like a whole lot bigger than Satan's power in the end times. Satan's power will be the loudest that it's ever been. There will never have been a time in human history where Satan's power would have been more obvious, would have been more loud, would have been more recognizable. But God will be displaying power through his believing community in greater measure than we've ever seen in human history before. So it's not like Satan wins at all. But nor can we dis, uh, dismiss all of the ways that Satan will really be making significant negative impact. And so it's getting a vision for ourselves as the victorious church in the midst of the darkest time of human history. That's the reason we have the book of Revelation. To get a vision for ourselves as the bright righteousness of Christ during the darkest time of human history. Brightest light, darkest darkness. And that's our hope. And so we know how it ends. We know this, where this is going. And so the time period of people not giving their lives to Jesus anymore because they took the mark of the beast, by the way, that's only a three and a half year period of time. We got a lot of living to do besides that. And at the end of that three and a half period of time, Jesus appears in the sky. So you've really only got three and a half solid years of the most dark time. And leading up to that, there's going to be the greatest revival in human history. There's going to be breaking out of the church in power and new expressions in, in the first and greatest commandment in the church. I mean, it's going to be an awesome time to live. But we also have to be sober about the rise of darkness around us. So, yeah. Yes. Of course it was, because we all have the same question. Uh, group three's question was the same as group one's. Okay. Uh, yeah, you guys. Yeah. So the question is, there's verses in the scripture that talk about repenting to God. And then there's also verses that talk about repenting to humans. Uh, why is there a difference? How do we carry our heart? Um, here's the simple answer. Repent to everybody all the time as much as you can. <laughs> and always include God in the conversation. Um, but especially when there's ought between you and a person. I just, the, math, the Sermon on the Mount to me, Jesus is like giving us the most incredible, crazy charge he says, in the Sermon on the Mount kind of assumes you want to love God, okay? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So to the group that's like, you want to love God, right? Yeah, we do. Hey, I'm assuming that you guys are going to like give gifts to God and make offerings to God and that kind of stuff. Yeah. He says, if you're on your way to give God something awesome, you're going to give him an offering, you're going to make a sacrifice, you're going to do something, you're going to commit your life to the mission field, you're, gonna, you're on your way to do something awesome, and on the way you remember, somebody's mad at me, stop. And don't give your gift. Turn around and make right with the person who's mad at you. Oh my gosh. It's 
So it's not just people I'm mad at that I need to forgive. I need to go get right and get forgiveness from the people that are mad at me, whether I did something or not, because I realized they had ought with me. Because the Lord in his kingdom, he doesn't want the place of unrepentance, the place of unforgiveness, the place of judgment. He doesn't want those things out in the water. And so he makes the charge like, hi, that's, that is like over and above. It's more than you've got a judgment against them. You think they might be mad at you. And she's like, you better go deal with it. I'll count that as an offering and then we'll do the other offering in a minute. You go get right with the one that's mad at you. So far as it depends on you. I mean, if somebody's like, I'm mad at you and you can't stop me and I'm going to pop your tires. Like, I'm sorry. Can I, I repent? I did this. And, no, I'm still mad. And in fact, now I'm going to pop your tires and take the tires and sell them. It's like, all right, well, I did everything I could. I came with an honest heart. I came with genuineness. Ultimately, you going to them is not you in charge of their soul in response. You going to them is you in charge of your soul in response. And then what, hap- what they do is up to them. But the, the subject of repentance is, it's just beautiful. Just think about this for a second. The way you entered the kingdom of God, the door, was repentance. What a great door. Like, let's use that door all the time. That door was the most cleansing moment of your life. You repented. You owned your junk before God and maybe before people, depending on what your circumstance was. But you owned your junk and you said, I'm sorry, it's my junk. I did it. I'm sorry. And you got the most free you've ever been in your entire life in one second. The washing of the blood of Christ over your life through you receiving his forgiveness that you had to realize you needed and you must have repented. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And, and as, we're, as we repent, like we get the freedom and the, we get the connection. If Repentance is the jam, man. I'm telling you, repentance is awesome. So we want to have repentance as part of our way. And I'll just tell you this. There is nothing more divisive in any group of people than when there's a person who has unrepentant sin in that group that the sin was against people in that group. And the sin could be bad attitude yesterday. Listen, if you had a bad attitude, go apologize to the people you had a bad attitude about. How hard is that, really? Hey, yesterday I had a bad attitude. I'm sorry. You're forgiven. I mean, it's like, why are we so afraid to repent over a bad attitude, over saying something, over being mean, over being stingy, over being... Why are we so afraid? It's how we get free. Repentance should be our way in the kingdom. And, and when it is, you're moving more and more into the light and into righteousness and freedom and joy and forgiveness. It's awesome! And when you don't, you're hiding more in the shadows and in darkness and you're separating yourself, and you're isolating yourself, and you're creating an opportunity for the enemy to come and sow additional things, discord and shame and, and uh, pride. and uh, Yucky! Stay in the light. Just be the most repentantest person God's ever met, everybody's ever met. It's sweet, man. Okay. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.